are in Ezekiel 28, and this is the third of three sequential chapters that is talking about Tyre. As I said last time, the first two chapters are talking about politics and economics. God is upset with Tyre and is going to sand them off, which of course happened. And the reasoning in the two chapters that we have just finished is economic and political. Tyre was a major commercial empire. They owned the Mediterranean. Up until them, all sea traffic was hugging the coast. You stayed within sight of the coast, which meant that they drastically could shorten the distance to haul cargo, and they got filthy, filthy rich. Also, during the time of David and Solomon, they were allied with Israel. What Israel had is the land bridge between Africa and Eurasia. You've got the Mediterranean Sea on the west, you've got the Arabian Desert on the east. So if you want to move an army or anything like that, you pretty much have to go through Israel. Most of your heavy trade went through Israel. Plus, Solomon had major Israeli port in a lot. So what you would have is commerce coming up the coast of Arabia be transshipped by Israel and then hit the Mediterranean Sea. So major, major, major economic and trading system between Israel and Tyre. The reason that God gives why he's grumpy with Tyre is because when they started getting into trouble with Babylon and with the Assyrians, Tyre said, oh, goody, we now have all of the trade to ourselves. And that was not pleasing to God. This is part of a series of prophecies against the surrounding nations. So we had Philistia, we had Moab, we had Edom, we had Ammon. And the other part of the problem with these surrounding countries is they intermarried and made treaties with Israel and seduced them away from the worship of Jehovah. So combination of all that causes God to say Tyre's going to be taken out. Chapter 28 now, we're going to switch from political economic to spiritual. And you're going to want to put a finger in Isaiah 14. Remember last time when we were talking about the fall of Tyre, we were in Revelation, where you had all of the parallels between the fall of Babylon and the prophecies against Tyre. The ship captains sitting offshore, weeping, and all of that kind of stuff. Revelation reads very similarly to Ezekiel 26 and 27. So if you read those two simultaneously, you get a picture of something different. Stop here for a second. It's actually listening to Ron Dart, and he brought something up that I have said lots of times before, but he reminded me of it, so I'll <laughs> jump into that. In the ancient world, you had territorial gods. So each country, if you will, had its own gods. So when you started making treaties with a country, what you wound up doing is recognizing their god as part of the deal. For example, when Ahab married Jezebel. 
It was a political marriage. But she brought with her the priests of Baal. And of course, then we have the whole thing that happened with Elijah, where Elijah finally has to go clean him out. Similarly with Solomon, Solomon scarfed up seven or 800 women. But the point is a lot of those were political marriages. They were marriages made to cement a treaty. And all of those gals brought with them their pagan upbringing. And he happily provided them with altars all around Jerusalem so that each of them could worship her own God. We don't think of treaties as any big deal. They have trade treaties and military treaties and all that kind of stuff. Here what wound up happening is you de facto recognize the gods of that country. And that is the thing that makes God upset with the surrounding countries because Israel imported all their gods. So now what we're going to do is we're going to go down to Ezekiel 28. And this is the spiritual side of the problem. And it's going to be in two parts. Part one is going to be aimed directly at the king of Tyre. And part two of it, same chapter, is going to switch. And all of a sudden, we're going to be looking at the spiritual world instead of the physical world. And there's an abrupt transition. So 28, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of the gods in the heart of the seas. Yet you are but a man and no God. Though you make your heart like the heart of a god, you are indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. By your wisdom and your understanding, you have made wealth for yourself, and you have gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. Pause there for a minute. Daniel and Ezekiel are contemporaries. So you have three prophets writing about this same period of time. You've got Ezekiel writing among the exiles in Babylon. You've got Jeremiah writing from Jerusalem. And then you've got Daniel, who is writing from the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. So all three of these guys are contemporaries, and they're all three writing about the same stuff. So when Ezekiel mentions Daniel and his wisdom, Ezekiel probably knew Daniel, as certainly by reputation, if not personally. So what we have here is this idea where the ruler of a country is considered to be a god himself. A couple chapters from now, when we talk about Egypt, that subject is going to come up again, where Pharaoh of Egypt is going to say, I created the Nile River, it is mine, and... I'm a god. So this idea of being human gods goes clear back a long time. The oldest human manuscript in existence, to my knowledge, is Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh was written in Ur well before Abraham and well before the Bible. It's like 5,000 years old. And Gilgamesh talks about the flood and talks about the 
arc and, and all of that kind of, it, it's really a fascinating read. Anybody wants it, I have it at home. But one of the things that he does is he goes down to the underworld to talk to the gods. Now, don't get me wrong, I have no idea whether that actually happened. But he writes and he goes down to the underworld where he talks to the gods and they talk about the flood and all that kind of stuff and comes back and this idea of trading back and forth between the physical and the spiritual world is very much a feature of the world before Christ. Author I like very much, James Kugel. She's written several books. He's a Jew, not a messianic. Professor of Semitic Studies at Hebrew, a professor at Barillion, and written a lot of books on the Bible. And he believes the Bible. He is excellent, excellent, excellent. But anyway, one of the things that he says is early in the Bible, the early books, I think the way he describes it is the barrier between the physical and the spiritual seems to have been very porous. So what you have early on, for example, in the circumcision of Abraham, Abraham talks to God, circumcises himself, and is sitting under the oak feeling sorry for himself a few days later, and God and two angels shows up and they do lunch. And then the two angels go on down and destroy Sodom. And God, I believe Yeshua, has a conversation with him. Same thing with Samson's parents. Father is Manoah. I don't know what his mother's name is. She's out there doing whatever stuff she's doing. And she's talking to some guy. And he says, all right, this time next year you're going to have a baby. She's barren. And so she runs back and grabs her husband and brings him back, and he says, are you the one that told her she's going to have a baby? He says, yeah, she is. Well, who are you? What's your name? What do you mean? You don't need to know my name. It's wonderful. So he runs off, and he makes lunch. He gets a kid and boils it and so forth and puts it on a rock, and this guy touches it with his staff, and fire comes out of his staff, and the thing is consumed, and this guy's sucked up into the overhead. These instances in the early Old Testament are fairly common where you have somebody chatting with somebody else and something happens and something shifts and they and you realize that he's talking to an angel. So the idea of people going back and forth or talking with spiritual beings and being treated as peers is perfectly biblical. And you were asking earlier about the Pharaoh at the time of the Exodus. First off, it's probable that that Pharaoh was a brother to Moses. Remember, Moses was raised in the court of Pharaoh. That would have been this Pharaoh's father, which is, by the way, why Moses wanders in and out of the palace whenever he wants to. That may be, not scriptural. And when you have the miracles where, you know, we have the snake, all that kind of stuff. Pharaoh's magicians are able to do all that stuff too. And it's only about the third or fourth plague that finally God outstrips them and they can't keep up anymore. So this idea of believing that you are a God would have been unremarkable. We're going to have the same problem with the Prince of Tyre. And the other place you all are going to want to be is in Isaiah 14.
we're going to be there too. So I'm all the way down to verse 5. What he's doing is he's talking to the human king of Tyre, prince of Tyre, and this guy is, as I have described, got the idea that he is divine. So verse 5 now. By your wisdom in your trade, you have increased your wealth, and your heart has become proud in your wealth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you make your heart like the heart of a god, therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall thrust you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. Will you still say, I am a god, in the presence of those who kill you, though you are but a man and no god, in the hands of those who slay you? You shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of foreigners, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. The way people thought about it, apparently, from everything I've read, is one of the things that happened in war is if you lost, their God defeated your God. And if they won, you just suddenly got a new God because their God conquered your God. So this idea of him believing that he is divine goes throughout all of Scripture, down to Caesar at the time of Christ. What happened was the Roman Senate, upon the death of a Caesar would deify him. Like making a saint today, they would make the deceased Caesar a god, which means that Caesar was the son of God. That was one of his titles. So when Yeshua comes on the scene and he claims to be the son of God, he's freaking out the Pharisees on one hand, but he's also in a political sense going straight at Rome because Caesar is the son of God, not this upstart Jew in Palestine. So claiming to be the son of God is more than a theological thing. You say the Pharisees freaked when he said that. But so did the Romans for different reasons. And in fact, there's a stone in Turkey. exists to this day. You can go see it. And what it is, is the gospel. And the gospel according to Augustus Caesar. And Augustus Caesar has brought peace, all of this kind of stuff. And this is literally called the gospel of Augustus Caesar. So when Yeshua comes on the scene and claims to be the son of God, this is a big deal. And that's part of the reason why the Pharisees got so nervous and upset. Because if this guy is the son of God, that means Caesar's not the son of God. That means we've got a war on our hands, us against Rome. And that isn't going to work. In addition to the fact that they just can't stand the guy, that's one of the big reasons why they want to get him out of there is because they are afraid that he will foment a war with Rome and they will get sanded off flat like they do in 70 AD. So now, this is going to be one of those shifts I'm talking about where you're talking about a secular king and all of a sudden the focus shifts. And that happens here in verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God. Now, we have just disposed of the king of Tyre 
in the previous verses. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Whoa. King of Tyre was not in Eden. So notice what's happened is things have all of a sudden shifted. We're no longer talking about the human king of Tyre. What we're talking about is the prince of Tyre. Remember Daniel? The prince of Persia that resists the angel and Michael has to come and help him burn his way through? So what we're now talking about is the spiritual covering over Tyre. So again, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardis, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. So this is a created being. Spiritual being, but created. He was as beautiful as God can make a thing. Do with that whatever your imagination calls up. And that's what we're describing here is a human perspective on the most beautiful thing that God could make. Sort of like in Revelation where you get these images where he describes the throne, where it's like a sea of glass and all that kind of stuff. He's trying to use human words to describe something that he has seen in a vision. And the thing that he has seen in a vision is probably marginally undescribable. So he's doing his best. Same thing here with Ezekiel. So 14, you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Now remember, where was he? In the garden. The holy mountain of God. So the unrighteousness that was found in him, I am going to suggest, was whispering in Eve's ear. And, by the way, Nahash, which is what the word is in Genesis 3 that is translated as serpent, literally means the shining one. The word is now used of snake. That's the Hebrew word for snake. But the etymology of the word is the shining one. And the other thing about the snake is God says, from now on, you will crawl on your belly like a reptile, indicating that before that, he perhaps wasn't. But the idea that he was beautiful is everywhere attested to. Verse 16, in the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst. And you sinned, so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade. Now notice what we've done here. We have moved him from the mountain of God to Tyre. 
So we're talking trade here. Now we're going to get back to where he is and who he is in just a minute, but let's go ahead and finish the paragraph. So verse 18 again. By the multitude of your iniquities in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. I consumed you and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who saw you among the peoples were appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end. You shall be no more forever. So now remember, we talked last time about the parallels between Tyre and Babylon. Let's swing over to Isaiah 14. This is Israel's remnant talking to Babylon. I'm not going to read verses 3 through 11. They are trash talk, telling all the things that are going to happen to Babylon. Sports trash talk kind of thing. 12 is where we want to start. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid nations low. Does that sound to you like we are talking about the same being that we just described in Tyre? You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit in the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will met myself like the most high. How many I wills are there, by the way? Six. So this is Satan, Lucifer. And just like in the thing we read about Tyre, he is gorgeous. He is beautiful. He is powerful. And he gets puffed up and full of pride. And that pride leads him to believe that he is equivalent to God. Notice how parallel the two things are between Tyre and Babylon. Obviously, in both of those cases, we're talking about a spiritual being. We're not talking about a physical king. In Ezekiel, the death of the physical king was in the first couple of paragraphs. And then the thing shifts, and we're talking about now the spiritual power behind the physical king. Your reference there is Daniel where Daniel is praying for three weeks, and finally Gabriel shows up and said, I would have been here right away, except I had to contend for three weeks with the prince of Persia, and I had to get Michael, a warrior over your people, to help me get through. And, oh, by the way, when I leave, i got to go back the same way. So the idea here that you have territorial spirits is one thing. The other thing is, as you read Revelation, and it talks about Babylon, and it talks about the whore that sits upon the seven mountains and so forth, the people reading that at the time it was written would have said, Rome, there would have been no doubt in anybody's mind that they were talking about Rome, even though it's talking about Babylon. And the thing to understand here is Babylon starts off as a place, but it represents a spiritual system. And what it does is it follows power. So as Babylon is destroyed, it moves. 
And so by the time of revelation, the time of Christ, the seat of that power is then Rome. As Rome is destroyed, it moves again. So the idea here is this pagan system that is talked about in Revelation as a commercial and trading system and is talked about here in Ezekiel again as a commercial and trading system. The whole idea is what you have is unrighteous commerce both physically and spiritually in the pursuit of power on the earth and that power moves as empires go down. You can make an excellent case that the center is now Washington. At the time of the 18th and 19th centuries, you could have argued it was London. And the point is, this is all the same stuff. So that as you read Ezekiel, you read Revelation, you read Isaiah, what you see are things that you recognize. Unjust courts, oppression of the poor, we now do it with bureaucracies. So you see the things that God is speaking against through the prophets, and you make a mistake if you think that that was only for them. One of the things Ron Dart said, which is a good way to say it, I completely agree with him, is God quit sending us prophets after Yeshua. And the reason for that is they keep saying the same thing. What happens to human societies as they get too big and too powerful happens over and over and over again. I don't need to send you another prophet. Just go ahead and read them. That's you. And to the extent that that's you fits, take the warning seriously. So as you're reading this stuff, understand that yes, it applied to a real place at a real time in history. But it's also set up and designed so that it applies any time in history to a people for whom the conditions that are being spoken against apply. So if your society has got, for example, unequal weights and measures, unjust judges, oppression of the poor, the fatherless, and the widow, if your society does that, as ours does, what winds up happening is God hasn't changed his mind. If God was upset with Tyre or Babylon or Jerusalem or any of those people for doing that stuff, if your society does the same thing, he is every bit as upset about it. Change up just a little bit here. Remember, as we've been going through Ezekiel, Ezekiel is talking to the exiles. And what he's doing is he is explaining to them what is about to happen to Jerusalem. That's what's been happening up until now. So he's telling these exiles in Babylon, this is what's about to happen and this is why. That's thing one. The other thing he is doing is talking to those exiles and explaining to them why they are in exile. Most of them don't get it. They think, well, we went to the temple every Shabbat, we did the sacrifices, we did all of this stuff, why are we here? 
sort of like today, well, I go to church every Sunday, and what's the problem here? And of course, the problem is that the form of worship that they were going through did not translate into righteousness in the society. Their religion was confined to the temple, if you will, and didn't make it out into society. Society was totally corrupt, even though they were doing the form of religion. So in the United States today, you have churches that are not much more than gay dating clubs. You see a rainbow flag outside of a church, what you're looking at is a gay dating club. And they think we're going to church. We're worshiping God. We're doing all the right stuff. And what God says is, uh, quit bringing your sacrifices. It's become a stench. Back in the 50s and 60s, there was a concerted campaign to get the Ten Commandments out of the public space. If you had Ten Commandments monuments anywhere on government property, they came after you, and you had to get rid of the Ten Commandments for fear that somebody would read them and obey them, I guess. And oh, by the way, the church didn't fight back. The church said, oh, well, freedom of religion, they get to believe whatever they want, and I guess we can't impose our beliefs on them. And what winds up is where we are now. So now let's go talk about Sidon. We're back in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 28, and we're at verse 20. Now, Sidon is on the coast of the Mediterranean, south of Tyre. They are also a trading port, not as big as Tyre. During the time of David and Solomon, they were allies with Israel. So 20, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face towards Sidon and prophesy against her and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Sidon, and I will manifest my glory in your midst. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in her and manifest my holiness in her. For I will send pestilence into her and blood into her streets. The slain shall fall in her midst by the sword that is against her on every side. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Same thing that we have seen over and over again. 24, And for the house of Israel, there shall be no more a briar to prick or a thorn to hurt them among all their neighbors who have treated them with contempt. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So where we want to be is in Joshua. Pick it up in 23.12. He's talking about what's supposed to be done to the nations that occupy Canaan. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of those nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord God will no longer drive out those nations before you but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip in your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off the good ground that the Lord your God has given you. It's also in Numbers 33, the Torah. Numbers 33, 55. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell, 
and I will do to you as I thought to do to them. This idea of a thorn in the flesh, you all remember that from the New Testament where Paul was complaining about a thorn in the flesh. If you are a believer in expositional constancy, which I am, which is to say God uses images consistently, then the first place that that happens is here in Numbers. And it refers to people. It doesn't refer to illnesses. One of the things that you'll see in commentaries is that Paul's thorn in the flesh was an ailment. His eyes were going bad, or you'll see all sorts of stuff. What I'm suggesting to you is that's not that at all. What it is is Pharisees of the party of the circumcision who are going around after him undoing what he did as he planted churches. So the letters to Galatians, for example, he is speaking about the members of the circumcision party who came down from Jerusalem and started saying to the Galatian church, the Gentiles, unless you become circumcised, you cannot be saved. What I'm suggesting to you is those are the thorn in the flesh that Paul is talking about. Now, having said that, let's come back to Ezekiel 24. And for the house of Israel, there shall no more be a briar to prick or a thorn to hurt them among all their neighbors who have treated them with contempt, then they will know that I am the Lord God. So what's happened here in these several chapters where we've talked about Tyre, Sidon, Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, all of these people around and God dealing with them, the problem is that they come in and intermarry and they have led Israel astray. What God is saying after this string of destructive things that happened to all those nations is, I'm going to get the thorns out of there. Because the idea of a thorn in the flesh is people who are against what the people of God are trying to do. And God says, if you don't wipe them out, they're going to be thorns in the side. And here he says in Ezekiel 24, I'll wipe them out and they won't be thorns anymore. Verse 25. Thus says the Lord God, when I gather the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered and manifest my holiness in them in the sight of the nations, then they shall dwell in their own land that I will give to my servant Jacob, and they shall dwell securely in it. They shall build houses and plant vineyards. They shall dwell securely when I execute judgments on all their neighbors who have treated them with contempt. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God. Now, one of the things that I do not know, you of course all know your history, and you have the house of Judah and the house of Israel. When he's talking about the house of Israel here, I don't know whether he's talking about Ephraim or whether he's talking about all of Israel. It shifts back and forth and you can't always tell. This is one of those places where I can't tell. The spiritual created the physical, not the other way around. So when people talk about reality, the spiritual is reality. We are a manifestation of the spiritual world. People today have that backwards. Pagans are not stupid. Some of them are, but a lot of them aren't. There's a quote by G.K. Chesterton that I like. 
The madman is not the one who's lost his reason. The madman is the one who's lost everything except his reason. In other words, the mental machinery works just fine, but the underlying beliefs off of which it works are fallacious. They can still do the arithmetic, they can still run the logic, but where they start from is wrong. So they wind up in weird places, not because they can't reason well, it's because their metaphysics is wrong. Oh, Elohim, 